Hello and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, where we like to eat, drink, and be merry. This is a podcast for people who are thirsty for information about wine and the incredible people who make it. And today's show is no exception. We are hosted by two Marys. I am one of them. I am Mary Babbitt. And I'm the other. I am Mary Orlin. And today we are going to have a super fun show. So we are so glad you have tuned in and are joining us. Um, we'd like to welcome Larry Schaefer of Tercero Wines. He's in the Santa Barbara County winemaking region in the Santa Inez Valley. He's got a tasting room in Los Olivos. And Larry is just one of those, tell it like it is, straight talking winemakers. He is a fierce proponent of the Santa Barbara wines and his region. But um, we are fortunate that instead of becoming a pro volleyball player like he had planned, he actually became enamored with wine. And um, he is a Rhone specialist. So he's making beautiful Viognier, Roussan, Syrah, Grenache, and we'll get to know about more of those wines. So Larry, welcome to our show. Well, thank you both for having me. I really do appreciate it. It's a it's an honor and it's always humbling to uh, be able to tell my story and interact uh, with, with people like you uh, to talk about what I do. Well, we're glad to get to know you on this podcast. So why don't we start at the beginning and tell us how you went from volleyball maybe to, to wine or how did you get interested in making wine? Sure. So I, I, I kind of like to start by saying that uh, as an undergraduate, I started school at UC Davis, which anyone in the wine industry or even loosely associated with wine knows is a great winemaking school. Unfortunately, I didn't grow up in a household that wine was a part of whatsoever. My dad was an elementary school teacher. My mom was raising five boys. We are pretty certain there was a large cache of hard alcohol somewhere hidden around the house. <laughs> um, we only found a couple of bottles, uh, but there was never any wine. So wine wasn't part of kind of my, my upbringing culture. So when I went to Davis, I wasn't thinking about wine whatsoever. I ended up transferring from Davis to UC Berkeley, graduated from the Haas Business School there. And my first job out of school was in the record industry as a financial analyst. I love music. Uh, in high school, I took pictures of punk bands in the LA music scene, and I really wanted to get into the A&R and marketing side of music, but I was a number cruncher. And I'm a decent number cruncher, but I'm definitely more of a people person. So I always say that working in that company and not being able to be a part of the marketing was kind of like going to work for Ben and Jerry's and loving ice cream and never being able to taste any of it. You know, it's great. <laughs> it's great that you're working for this company, but you're not really a part of what you wanted to do. So I left there and got into educational publishing, educational toys, and then eventually into traditional trade publishing. And I worked for a company that developed pop-up books for publishers in New York and London and elsewhere. And was my job to go sell um, the, the projects that our design team had put together. And it was, it was great. I loved it. I just had a psychotic boss. So um, after I'd been there for a while, it was time for a change. And wine always intrigued me, but I've, I've never been a wine collector. In fact, other wine makers will, will um, they certainly don't call me a wine geek. Let's put it that way. I don't sit around posting pictures of beautiful, you know, $600 bottles of Burgundy. It's just not what I do. Um, I really enjoy the process. The challenge was when I decided to look into the wine 
industry. I, I easily could have gone into wine sales because that was my background, but I really wanted to challenge myself. So I really felt like my mind wasn't being challenged at this point in my life. I started having kids and I really wanted to show them you have to enjoy what you do. And so I started going back to school, living in Orange County, taking classes at community colleges with kids who literally could have been my kids, taking general chemistry and biology. So a complete do-over. I worked part-time in Temecula, uh, the Temecula wine region. Uh, worked with a wonderful winemaker down there named Mike Tingley, who was a self-taught winemaker. And who was just so awesome to, to listen to and, um, and to, to learn from. And then I transferred back up to UC Davis and got my master's degree in viticulture and enology. So viticulture being the agricultural side of our business, the grape growing side, enology being the winemaking side. And I moved up to where I'm sitting now, uh, which is in Los Olivos, um, in the Sanchez Valley, as you said, home to sideways, uh, for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> right. And I worked, at, I worked at Fest Parker Winery, ironically, when I got out of school. And Fest Parker was Frost Canyon in that movie. Um, and I, I, that's really where my education as a winemaker began, because I tell people you go to school to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an accountant, and you're really not that until you've been in your field for a number of years. And winemaking is the exact same thing. You can have the best theoretical background that doesn't make you a winemaker. What makes you a winemaker is, is being out there and having to deal with the reality of what happens, not the theory of what happens. And I was fortunate at Fest Parker. Uh, to work with a lot of different varieties, to work with fermentations that are very similar to what I'm doing now, very small batch, up to 40 tons, uh, and to work with three other winemakers who all had different ideas of what they were looking to do. And I, I like to say it took me about 10 years of, of winemaking to really feel comfortable enough to call myself a winemaker and to really kind of own my craft. And at that point, it was time to change, change gears. Um, and I ended up uh, leaving... Best Parker to start my own brand, Tercero. So Tercero means third in Spanish. I'm a third child. Uh, I have three kids. And it was also the dormitory complex I lived in at UC Davis as an undergraduate. The dormitory complexes there are Primero, Segundo, Segura, um, Tercero, and Corto. So I, uh, I, I started my brand in, officially started my brand back in 2006, but uh, full time was able to concentrate it uh, on it um, in in the mid 2000s at uh, 2010s, and I love what I do. Um, uh, as you said, I'm very passionate about those things that I feel strongly about, uh, and that includes Santa Barbara County for sure. I love Santa Barbara County wines. I think we're the one of the most under uh, appreciated and unknown regions in in all of California in terms of what we do. Um, and I love Rhone varieties. They're what's not to like about Rhone varieties. They're I agree. They're, they're fantastic, and they, there's so much variety in these varieties that I'm never bored. And the beautiful thing about Santa Barbara County is we have a very wide range of soils and climates and microclimates, and and it's fun to take the same variety and grow it in multiple places and see what it does. And I I continue to be as excited now as I've ever been about what, my, what I'm doing. In fact, probably even more so. And uh, I, I always like to say that I've been doing this nearly 20 years and I still don't know what I'm doing and that's not a bad thing. Um, <laughs> not at all. So um, a couple of questions for you, Larry. First, um, did you get to work with Fess Parker himself, AKA Davy Crockett? You know, Fess was alive when I was there. When Fess started that winery, he was pretty much at the winery every day. 
greeting customers. And I hear all kinds of stories about that. Um, I, I did meet him a couple of times. Uh, he passed away a couple of years after I started with the company. His son, Eli, and his daughter, Ashley, were very involved yes. when I started with the company. And so I had a chance to, to spend time with them. And in fact, I just saw Eli's son, so um, uh, Fess's grandson, who started a brewery in, in Santa Barbara. And I saw him earlier this week for the first time in a while. Oh, that's really cool. Neat. Um, yeah. So, you know, keeping the business, the family business going. And um, so you do have to tell us about this um, dream to become a pro volleyball player. Well, I think when people decide to quit doing what they're doing and move into another area, you kind of do a uh, inventory, right, of the things that you're interested in. And I played volleyball in high school on our team, uh, the varsity team. I played a little bit of beach ball, but if anyone has met me, um, I'm about five, seven. Uh, I'm not going to make it as a player, um, <laughs> but I love the game. And I love, I, you know, one of the advantages of being short was that I moved around the court really, really well. And that's, that's great when you're in a group of six uh, or when you're playing kind of recreational, uh, when you're up against a six, eight guy, it's not as if I'm going to block him. And it's not as if I'm going to be able to get the ball away from him. So, uh, yeah, the reality was that wasn't going to happen, but that's okay. Um, you know, and I still enjoy watching the game. I still enjoy playing the game occasionally, though, just like everything in life, as I've gotten older, um, my movements are not quite as limber as they were before. So not as if I'm out there as often as I'd like to be. Now, what wines do you like to drink when you're playing volleyball? Well, when I'm playing volleyball, it's normally pretty darn warm. And I'm actually not going to drink any wine when I'm playing volleyball, to tell you the truth, to just to be honest with you. Um, if I'm going to drink anything alcoholic, it's probably going to be a beer because it's very warm outside. If I were to drink something, it would probably be something uh, bright and acidic that would be refreshing. Fair enough. So maybe a Viognier. I know you guys make those. Can you tell our listeners about when you say Rhone varietals? Some people know what that means and other people might want to learn a little bit more. So can you give us um, a little breakdown about the kind of wines, the type of wines you make and what you wish people knew about Rhone varietals? Sure. So Rhone varieties are named that because they're associated with the Rhone Valley, which is in the kind of central eastern part of France. Most people are familiar with Bordeaux varieties. Um, Cabernet, Merlot, on the white side, Sauvignon Blanc. Most, many people are familiar with Burgund Burgundian varieties. Rhone varieties are, are not that well known. Um, the Rhone Valley is broken into two areas. The Northern Rhone, which is very cold, which sits up kind of against Burgundy, or very close to Burgundy. And the Southern Rhone, which is very warm. The Northern Rhone, the king of the Northern Rhone on the red side is Syrah. In fact, it's pretty much the only red grape that's allowed to grow there. And there's a little uh, sub-appellation called Condru, which is the birthplace of Viognier. So in the north, you're going to find Viognier, you're going to find Syrah, you're going to find Marsan and Roussan, which are very textual varieties. In the south, um, so there's 22 varieties that you can grow throughout the entire Rhone Valley. In Chateauneuf-du-Pape, which is one of the most famous parts of the Rhone Valley, there's 13 varieties. So it gets a little confusing. So some yeah. varieties, like for instance, you can grow Viognier in the north. You cannot grow Viognier as part of Chateauneuf-du-Pape, but you can include it in a Cote de Rhone. So it's kind of like, um, well, th there's much stricter rules, obviously, over in, in France in terms of what you can and can't do and call it that appellation. You could, if you were in Chateauneuf, you could plant Viognier. 
you just can't label it as a Chateauneuf wine. You have to label it as something else, a larger appellation rather than a specialized appellation. So um, there- So which ones go ahead. are you doing and which ones do well in the Los Olivos or Santa Barbara County area? Well, the great thing is uh, pretty much every one of these is gonna do well in this area because there's, there's a spot for everything. There's certain varieties, say Syrah, that grow well in both cold, cold climates and warm climates. They just express themselves differently. There's other varieties that are definitely more challenged to grow in one versus the other. So for instance, Grenache. Grenache is a really warm climate variety. It needs heat to express itself, kind of like Zinfandel. Um, and if you plant Grenache in a cooler climate site, it's gonna be challenged to express itself in the way that, that you expect that variety to. The other thing that's important to me is it's something called typicity. If I'm going to work with a variety, I want it to have a, a aromatic and textural lineage to what the expectation of that variety is. That's kind of gotten lost in our country, I think. Um, if you try a Napa Cabernet, it could be every, anything from a cherry vanilla milkshake to something that is very earthy and, and, uh, and mushroomy and, uh, and it's difficult to even tell us the same variety. So. For me, it's, it's important to have a lineage back to kind of the way that these grapes were grown in the past and what they how they express themselves. But I work with about 10 of these Rhone varieties. I work with, um, on the white side, I do work with Viognier, though not as much. In fact, I haven't made a Viognier for a couple of years. I'll get into that. I work with Grenache Blanc. I work with Marsan. I work with Roussan. This year, I made my first Claret Blanche which is a, it is an established Rhone variety. It just has not been established in this country until about 2013, 2014. And then on the red side, I work with Syrah, Grenache, Morvedra, Petit Syrah, which is that questionable. It's a Rhone, it was, it was created for the Rhone, but it's not grown in the Rhone, but it still is kind of included in there. And then I work with Carignan and Senso as well. Um, I also do two rosés. I started doing one, now I do two. I do a Morvedra rosé which is similar to the Rosés of Bandal, which is a region in the, in, in the Provence area. And then I do a Senso Rosé as well. Um, I figure if I'm going to do one esoteric Rosé, why not just do two? <laughs> so I'm loving a term you said for a tasting note, basically for Cabernet Sauvignon, the cherry vanilla milkshake. I, I have not heard that. I think that's awesome. And um, I understand that in your tasting room, you don't have the traditional tasting notes. Can you talk about that? Sure. Not only do I not have them in my tasting room, but when I do Zoom tastings, I don't do that either. Uh, I'm a big believer that the power of suggestion is, is overused in our industry. We lead the taster to believe that there's things in a wine that may or may not be there. And sometimes people will feel bad if they don't get what they're supposed to get. Now, the reality is when tasting notes are compiled by a winemaker, uh, first of all, oftentimes they're compiled by a marketing person, not a winemaker, but when they're compiled, um, they're a, just a plethora of notes that kind of cover everything and anything under the sun, but they're generally notes that are gonna be pleasing. So I always like to say, it is rare if you're ever gonna find black licorice on a tasting note, because a third of people are gonna say, I don't like black licorice, I'm not gonna like the wine. They may not get it, but if you're, telling them that it's there. So instead of that, we're, what are we gonna say? We're gonna say fennel, or we're gonna say anise, and then it's okay. Um, we're not gonna see mushroom on a tasting note because a bunch of people are not gonna wanna try a wine that smells like mushrooms. But if we say it's earthy or forest floor, 
then it's okay. So we kind of lead the consumer to believe certain things. I'll use an example. I did a tasting uh, about four months ago, a Zoom tasting, and in one of my red wines, a woman said that she smelled cherry blossoms. And I thought that was fascinating. I stopped the tasting. Her name was Lisa. I said, Lisa, I got to ask, did you grow up in D.C.? Washington State or Japan? And it turned out she had grown up in D.C. So it was a scent that she was familiar with from where she grew up. And it was part of kind of not her DNA, but definitely part of her past. And that's kind of one example of I don't know what a cherry blossom is. I, I could imagine. I mean, I know what it is, but I couldn't pick it out. I could imagine cherry flower, put them together. But the fact that she picked that out meant that that's something she was familiar with. And I think that we all have that in us. And it's a push-pull concept here, right? A lot mm -hmm. of consumers want to be guided. I just don't want to lead them down a path to believe there's something there when it may not be there for them. I would sell more wines if I told people there were diamonds and rubies in my wine. I swear to gosh, I would. Um, I just refuse to do that. I just, I want consumers to find what they find. I totally agree with that. You mean there's not diamond and rubies in wine? Oh, gee. Well, according, according to some tasting notes, there must be. <laughs> I know. But, you know, um, I, I love that approach because so many times you look at tasting notes, you hear wine people talking about wine and you're just like, you know, they have some, you know, specific references that if you haven't experienced it, like you were saying, you don't know what it, you haven't really experienced the what a cherry blossom smells like. Well, how can you relate to that? Or like with New Zealand, um, Sauvignon Blancs, for example, you often hear the word gooseberry. Well, I've never had a gooseberry. I, I don't know what it tastes like, smells like. Um, so how, you know, I, I, I do think I would feel like, oh, gee, I, I don't want to sound stupid and say I don't know what that smells like. Well, but. yeah, and it adds to that whole intimidation factor that we talk about so much with wine. Like, It doesn't have to be this really incredibly um, intimidating beverage that you have to come out, somehow come out with some sort of knowledge in order to enjoy it. You know what I mean? I, I so often hear people say, I, I, I don't know much about wine. and I say that. I <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I do too. And I, my, my first reaction is, you know, A, you, you either like it or you don't. And one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges is when people get into wine, they normally reach a point of cognitive dissonance where they try a wine with somebody more knowledgeable than them or somebody, a highly rated wine, and, and they don't like it. So the first reaction is, I guess I just don't get it, right? I'm not experienced enough. And I always tell people, if you don't like it, you don't like it. Just because your significant other, just because your best friend who is a wine guru tells you this is a good wine doesn't mean you have to like it. We can learn to appreciate things that we don't like. It doesn't mean we have to like it. And I tell people all, all the time, I don't like country Western music. It's not that it's bad. And I will never use that term because they're going to put as much time and energy and passion into making that music as a music I like. I just don't prefer it. It is not my go-to. And when it comes to wine, that's the challenge is to get people to try enough wines to understand what they like and what they don't so they can pick out their preferences and not get locked into, you know, somebody will try a wine, they love it, they go buy three cases of it because it's something they like. And, and that's okay, but it kind of, it defeats the whole idea of, of, of you know, variety is a spice of life. Mm -hmm. And so there's that that balance between the two. 
Well, I was really interested in looking at some of the wines you offer on your website. You have one called an aberration wine. And, and in the description, it says it's foot stomped by Larry. And I love that. And I wonder, you're not only hands on, you're feet on with this stuff. <laughs> uh, I am. So part of the evolution of my winemaking has definitely been stem inclusion in my wines. I would say more than 95% of red wines are the first step is this, the clusters are sorted on a machine and then the clusters go into a destemmer and the stems are taken off the grapes and removed. And the main reason why people do that, why winemakers do that is to try to not detract from the purity of the fruit they're getting from their vineyard. I, on the other hand, really enjoy what stems bring to the table. I would agree that they do detract from the purity of the fruit, but in its place, they're adding earthy compounds that to me just make a wine more interesting in general. It is very easy to make fruity wines. I, I say that in all honesty, because fruity wines, um, fruity wines, uh, it's just a matter of ripeness and it's a matter of a couple of other things, but to make wines that have non-fruit elements is definitely more of a challenge. And that's really what I'm, I try to achieve in what I do. So yes, I do foot stomp all my, all my reds. Um, the grapes come in, they come in in half ton bins. It's a three foot, a four foot by four foot by three foot high plastic bin. I take my shoes and socks off and I jump in and you think you're gonna step onto a thousand pounds of grapes and you're gonna kind of sink down, but you actually don't because the stems work as a lattice and don't allow you to go very far down. So I'm not doing this for Facebook or Instagram videos. Um, I'm doing this because I like the results of stems being in my wine because they are gonna add tannins, they are gonna add bitter compounds and they're gonna change the aromatic profile of a wine in a unique way each, each year. Does stomping with your feet, um, is that gentler on the grapes and the quality of the, is, does it impact the quality of the juice you get? Um, I would say, I would say yes. Now I am, I am stomping on the grapes only on day one. So it is not as if I am stomping on the grapes to press my wine the I love Lucy concept of pressing the wine at the very end. That's not what I'm doing. It's only on day one when the grapes come in. And the reason I'm doing that is I'm fermenting with those stems, right? So if you ferment with stems, the really the only way to crush those grapes is to do this. The stems, are they make up so much of the must, the grapes, the stems, the skins, that if you try to punch down with cl complete clusters, you would need a very strong pneumatic device to be able to get very far down into the grapes. So by foot stomping, I'm breaking probably a third to a half of the clusters. And that's allowing that fermentation process. It's allowing the, the, the juice to be in contact with the, the stems to start that extraction process. And then fermentation will begin after a couple of days after that takes place. It's really cool. It really adds a nice handcrafted element to what you're doing. Well, it definitely puts a unique signature on all my wines. And that's what I tell people. I'll never claim it's a better or worse method, but no one will make wine in the same way I do. And no two of my wines are ever going to be alike. And it's it's a philosophical thing. I, another winemaker that makes wines at my facility this year was kind of looking at me like, what are you doing? I said, oh, and he goes, why are you stomping your grapes? I said, well, you know, and I explained why. And he goes, well, what do you expect to get out of it? I said, well, I honestly don't know because every year it's going to be different. And he, he said, well, isn't that a problem? So what do you mean? He goes, well, 
my customers expect consistency in my wines. And I said, well, my customers are on a journey with me. So, you know, it's a different philosophical take on it. And I, I understood what he was saying, because listen, we talked about wine being intimidated. At the end of the day, people go out and buy Kendall Jackson Private Reserve Chardonnay mm-hmm. because they know what to expect. And I, I enjoy that wine because again, every time I have it, I know what I'm gonna get. That's not the style of wine I make. So I understood what he was saying. He could not wrap his head around my concept of making wines that are unique each year. Just could, didn't, didn't matter. It didn't, it didn't register with well, it I, I read that you, you are interested in the why of wine, that you're very curiosity driven. And, and I, I think to just, you know, add on to what you were just saying there that you don't know what to expect each time you do it. And you are going to let the, the wine express itself to you. And I love that. Yeah, it's definitely a different mindset. And it's taken me, that was part of the transformation, right? Coming out of Davis, you learn very technical science oriented skills. And it, it, it took a while for me to kind of release myself from that. I still, listen, science is still important to winemaking. And there are winemakers who I do, don't believe bring enough science to the table. Um, but too much science doesn't make a wine better whatsoever. It, it, you need the understanding of the interactions taking place in wine, but it doesn't need to guide your winemaking. Uh, it just needs to be there as a tool to explain and possibly change some things later on if things don't go the way you want them to go. I've, re- I've read that when people come into your tasting room, you will often ask them how they drink their coffee, at, I guess, as a way to help guide what wines they might like. Can you explain that? Sure, sure. It's, it is something that I, I do quite often. Um, I, I do not allow my girlfriend to go to my winemaker dinners anymore because as soon as they start that, she starts mocking me uh, because she's heard it so many darn times. But the, the general premise is that if you drink your coffee, well, let, let me ask you, do you drink your coffee drink black, black or do you put some kind of creamer or non-dairy creamer in it? I like cream. All right. So my guess is both of you like different wines. We can kind of get into that. But my guess is the, the Mary who said she liked it black, if I give you scotch or whiskey, you probably, if you drink those liquids, you probably prefer them neat and not on ice or in a mixed drink. That's true. And this is Mary Orlin who prefers it, you know, black. And I, I do love scotch. Whereas uh, Mary, Mary Babin yeah. is going to need hers on ice or in a mixed drink if she's going to drink it at all, is my guess. That is correct, sir. <laughs> my guess is Mary Orlin probably likes Brussels sprouts, probably oh, I likes them a Rob lot. And Brussels I can sprouts all the time. And she, okay. Mary Babbitt, on the other hand, is probably going to need them roasted with balsamic or bacon or both. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> heavy on the bacon. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with bacon. I enjoy them that way as well. But um, my guess is that Mary Orland prefers cheese over chocolate. Uh, and if it is going to be chocolate, it's going to be dark chocolate. Uh, Mary Babbitt might prefer cheese over chocolate, but her chocolate's going to be bittersweeter milk and not dark chocolate, usually. Yes. And I'm both cheese and chocolate. Gotcha. Not one or the other. <laughs> so my guess is when it comes to wine, and people don't like to admit this, but Mary Orland, my guess is, if I gave you a single bottle of wine, your preference is going to be red over white in general. Um, I'm going to guess that you find a lot of white wines to be sweeter to you than they are to other people. Um, and I'm going to guess that when it comes to a red wine, your preference is going to be red wines 
that are earthy and rustic and not real fruity. Well, that's true. I do love earthy wines and my husband doesn't. And is he a, is he a coffee drinker with cream or milk? Well, yes. <laughs> so, so what this comes down to is it's, it, 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 this is borrowed from Cornell University's food science department. And they looked at people's bitterness um, and their, their bitter taste buds. So Mary Orland doesn't have a lot of bitter taste buds. And because she doesn't have a lot of bitter taste buds, she is needing more bitterness and acidity to excite those taste buds. Whereas Mary Babbitt has more taste buds, um, bitter taste buds. And when she has more bitter taste buds, that same wine that Mary Orland's going to find smooth, Mary Babbitt's going to find a little bitter. And it's not a, and it's not a better or worse. It's just an understanding. Um, so the, um, so 90% of the time, these hold. 90% of the time, if you drink your coffee black, these characteristics hold. There's exceptions to the rule, but to me, it's a real humanistic way of approaching this. So for instance, I now know that if you came into my taste room and you said you wanted a Cabernet, Mary Orlin is really saying what she wants is an old school Bordeaux that smells like cigars and leather and is earthy. Mary Babbitt might like having that a little bit, but probably is going to prefer more modern American cab that's going to have a lot more new oak on it and is going to be smoother. And it, it, it's to match your, your taste buds and to match your palate, not to match ratings or anything like that. That is so interesting. And maybe this solves the um, debate my husband and I, this Mary Orlin, always have it. He'll try a wine, he'll say, it's really bitter. It's, it's just bitter, bitter. And he, he asked me what makes it bitter. I'm like, it's not bitter. <laughs> We were just talking about this, Mary. Remember how I said to you, so many of my white wines lately have like this bitter aftertaste that I don't like. And I, I, I asked Mary Orlin, who knows more about wine than I do, hey, what's going on with that? What is that characteristic in wine that I'm getting? Is it a, a winemaking issue or what? And I thought maybe it was just the alcohol level in a wine because I tend to like lighter wines, I think. But um, yeah. Well, bitterness is a problem. It can be a problem in white wines. It is something that 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 winemakers struggle with, uh, especially varieties that have thicker skins. And it becomes more apparent uh, as the wine uh, gets closer to cellar or room temperature. It's not as apparent when a wine is really cold, which kind of goes back to, so if I gave you a red wine, um, Mary Babbitt, if I poured that red wine slightly chilled, you're, you might enjoy it better because it's going to be smoother than having it at room temperature where it might come across as bitter. We can kind of, it's totally true. I refrigerate all my red wine. Yeah. We can play around with the perception. I use Coca-Cola as an example, take Coca-Cola out of the fridge mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of refreshing. It's sweet, but the acid is, is accentuated based on the temperature, oh, wow. have it at room temperature. It's, it's the same chemistry, but the temperature is going to accentuate different things in it. And with wine, we can do the exact same thing. Mm. So, so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, and like I said, 90% of the time, I have had people refuse to answer the questions because they don't want to be categorized, which is interesting. Um, my favorite, I had a guy, he loved everything bitter, wouldn't drink his coffee black. I'm like, why not? He goes, well, my dad used to drink it black. My dad would breathe on me and I hate my dad. Um, so, you know, there, there are exceptions to every rule, but it, it's a really fascinating humanistic way to understand people's palates and make them tie it back to something outside of wine so that it's not intimidating. There's so much that goes into what 
your personal tastes and what you like or don't like and why. And it can be something like an emotional response to your father drinking coffee and breathing on mm-hmm. you. Exactly. It's, it sounds so hokey, but it, it is very true. Uh, and not only that, when you get into food and wine pairing, for instance, I've done some Zooms where I've done Pringles potato chips and wine. It's been a lot of fun, but I'll do say a barbecue Pringles and I'll have a couple that one of them will say, oh, I don't like this because the chip makes the wine more bitter. Well, guess what? Coffee drinker with cream. Uh, and then somebody else will say, I like it because it makes the wine more, uh, the, the wine more bitter. Um, black coffee drinker. So even as it, as it pertains to food and wine, um, the style of wine and food combination based on our palate is going to lead to a different result. I just, I find it fascinating. I just, I, I find the whole concept of wine amazing and how truly unique we all are. And we don't, we don't play that up enough, right? We, we, we try to generalize and categorize and it's, it's so much fun to realize that we all really come at this through a unique set of lenses. And I try to make people feel as comfortable about that as possible. Oh, I think it's so fascinating. And, and I think, Mary, you were starting to say people are probably so relieved um, just to have such a down-to-earth approach to it. And I know, Larry, that during this past year, you've been able to take some of your, because you have a tasting room in Los Olivos, and I can imagine you've had had times when you haven't been able to have customers in there, but you've also been doing um, a lot of Zoom-style uh, gatherings with people. And uh, can you tell us about that? Some of your, the ways you, you reach people and, and what's going on in your tasting room? Are you guys open now? Um, we, we are open for outdoor tastings. Um, apparently as of possibly today or tomorrow, we could go indoors a little bit if we serve food, which I have no desire mm-hmm. to do and no, my bread or cookies don't qualify as food. Um, it's supposed to be a meal, but yeah, I've had to pivot. I mean, I, I tell people that, you know, you're going to give me lemons. I'm going to find a way to make lemonade. And so starting in April, I started doing Zoom tastings um, and it's really expanded where I've done well over a hundred of these tastings from anything from a group of four to six people for a birthday party to a hundred people for, from a corporation and kind of everything and anything uh, you know, in between. I had three of them yesterday. Um, I, I really enjoy doing it. I'll, I repackage my wines into two ounce and four ounce bottles or do full size bottles. I ship them out across the country, uh, and then I get on for anywhere between 45 minutes and about 90 minutes, depending upon the group, um, and just have a blast uh, talking about wine and interacting with people. And the amazing thing is, Zooms to me are are really, um, they're very personal in the sense that everyone is looking at me and I'm looking at all of them. If I'm in my tasting room and I have four or five groups, they're kind of into their own little world, which, which is perfectly fine. But when you're on a Zoom, everyone is kind of following you. The other great thing about a Zoom, everyone's at home for the most part. They're in the most comfortable setting they can be. And I tell people that, you know, the setting in which you're in really impacts how a wine or food is perceived. If you are mad at the person you're with and you go to the best restaurant in your city, you are not going to remember your meal. You're going to remember being mad. And wine is the same way. The setting in which you have the wine is going to help determine whether you like the wine and what you remember about the wine as well. And so I do enjoy people being as comfortable as possible um, to help assist in that process. Do you see yourself continuing to do Zooms after the pandemic is over and we're back to whatever the new normal is? 
without a doubt. I mean, there are a couple of realities. One, uh, companies are not going to be gathering people the way that they've gathered them in the past. They might do that in a small scale, but not in as large a scale as they've done. A lot of companies would get their employees together on a quarterly basis and not going to happen. The other thing that's been really interesting is I have done, as I mentioned, birthday parties. I, I mean, in a way, I kind of feel like a clown, but that's okay. Um, but on, on the birthday parties, I literally have had siblings that have not seen each other for years that are able to see each other on Zoom. And it's been really, really interesting and really, really fun to see them toast each other. And, and it's not the same as being there. Listen, I would rather be handshaking and hugging people than, than seeing them on Zoom. But it's really become a powerful means of communicating in something that I think is here to stay. And what I really hope to do is I hope to leverage this not only to do more Zooms, but eventually when, when whatever the new normal is to actually go into businesses and with groups and do in-person tastings as well. Because basically I have the same personality, whether I'm in front of people in my taste room, whether I'm on this, this call with you, whether I'm on a Zoom call of hundred people, I, I don't have multiple personalities. Uh, I, I am the same person each and every every time, and I really enjoy and 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 cherish the interaction with people. Mm-hmm. Well, we should tell our listeners that you are actually located in one of the prettiest places in the world. So, <laughs> the chance to go to Los Olivos and see Tercero it is really well worth taking if you can get there. But how nice that people all across the country and even the world can participate in a Zoom with you. It, it's it's been fun. And I was going to also ask, um, so once you are able to open more fully beyond outside, what's going to be different post-pandemic than the before times? Well, that's a great question. And I think for me, uh, I have a, a fairly long bar in my taste room where people generally have sat. And I, I don't think I'm going to be using that bar for tastings anymore. I think I'm going to be doing all kind of small table um, tastings moving forward. I really like the intimacy of having small groups. I don't need the cheers aspect of a wine tasting room. That's not my cup of tea. I really like to be here as often as I can myself and the people that work for me um, love interacting with my customers. And everyone who's worked for me has always said such wonderful things about my wine club members because they're, they're part of the family in a way. And so to me, it's really important to continue to have that intimate reaction and interaction with people in my tasting room. So I think that's going to be one of the big changes is that I really want to kind of get people onto their own little tables um, and, and have them experience it in their own group. If they want to interact and we want to get loud, that's fine. They'll have the option of doing that. But when you're sitting at a bar, it's just a different experience. It's a different feeling. And I, I really like the, the individual groups. Nice. I can see that. You know, I read that you said wine has taught you patience and so has parenthood. So this is kind of a two-part question. The first part of it is, do you see any of your kids, I don't know what ages they are, but are, do you see them going into the business? And, uh, and, and then maybe you could describe how wine has taught you patience. Sure. Uh, first of all, so I have three kids. They're 18, 20, and 22. Um, and at this point, nope, not whatsoever. My 22-year-old lives up in Corvallis, Oregon, and is still discovering who they are. Uh, very creative, artistic person, but still doesn't really understand and, or know a, a complete direction, which is fine. 22 is still young in this world. Uh, my 20-year-old is a uh, 
22 year old, a 20 year old is studying um, civil engineering back in Boston at Northeastern. And then my 18 year old is going to be graduating high school this year and he'll be off probably to the East Coast as well. My 20 year old's a foodie and loves textures and loves foods and loves describing things. So there might be some, some collaboration down the line, but none of them really have, have done, have expressed that. And then in terms of the patients, I'll never forget the first year I made wine. Um, nine months in, I smelled and tasted the barrels and I was convinced I threw away all my money because they just tasted weird. And however you want to describe weird, uh, define weird. And so I had a choice at that point. I could top, I could uh, blend the barrels to come up with something that tasted better or I could just top the barrels and put them back to bed and come back to them. And that's what I did. And four months later, I tried the same wines and they had totally evolved um, and changed. And then the reality with wine is it's, it's an ever-changing pendulum of, of aromas and flavors. And you can try a wine on one day and it may not taste the same as it does the next day. And so it really taught me to not make rash judgments to make sure my wines are microbially clean and to kind of send them on their way. And then what's going to happen is going to happen. And I've been fortunate that most of the time uh, the wines have come out uh, to my liking, not always, but that's part of the creative aspect of what I do as well. You make wine so approachable. Um, I think easy to have a connection with and um, all of your wines are under screw caps. So you don't have corks, which um I'd like to know why you decided to do that. Also, our listeners should know that all of your wines are less than $50 a bottle, which I think is a tremendous value given the quality and the passion that goes into it. Yeah, I mean, I want, I don't, I like to tell people I don't make museum pieces. I, you know, I make wines for people to open up and consume and share with family and friends and pricing definitely comes into play with regards to that. The screw cap has as much to do with maintaining the quality of what's inside the bottle than anything else to me. Um, I'm not an anti-cork person whatsoever, but cork, natural cork has a couple of inherent fallacies. Uh, one of them being TCA, making a wine smell like wet cardboard or damp basement. And the other being the variability of natural cork in its cell structure, that you can have two wines from the same case 10 years out that may not actually smell or taste like each other because of the randomness in oxidative reactions that are going to take place from one cork to another. That's not a bad thing. That is part of the romance of the wine industry. But at the end of the day, I make a consumer product and I need to be able to stand behind it. And I need to, I don't want to steal the soul of a wine. Um, and screw caps still do allow for oxygen ingress. There's a misnomer that screw caps are kind of airtight and they're actually not. And you can use different liners on the underneath the screw cap to allow different amounts of oxygen to get in and out. And I do, um, but they do allow a wine to develop, but it happens in a more consistent manner. And I like that about, about screw caps. Uh, I will never call them the perfect closure because I don't think there is one. One of the negatives about screw caps is there's nothing inside the bottle to protect the wine. So if a screw cap gets dinged really hard, you can have micro fissures uh, in that cap that allow oxygen to get in more so than you want. And the wine can become oxidized with a cork that won't happen because you can bang the heck out of a wine under cork. As long as that cork is still intact in the bottle, it's preventing that from happening. So that is a challenge with screw caps, but I'll, I'm willing to risk that versus the other issues that natural cork has. You bring up some great points and 
you know, we've all had that corked bottle of wine that was such a disappointment. <laughs> and so I think uh, more and more, I'm, I'm certainly seeing uh, screw caps as a, a really great uh alternative. And I love that I can store them in my refrigerator easier. I'm just going to say that an open bottle with a screw cap, just I can lay it on its side and I'm good to go in the fridge. And my fridge is always super packed. So um, <laughs> that's helpful for me. Oh, no, the, the convenience of screw caps is is is, is pretty large, I must say. Uh, there There's a lot of of positives when it comes to them. There are some negatives, as I said, but there's definitely a lot of positives. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that people believe is that you really can't age a wine under screw cap very well. And anyone who um, says that I'm more than happy to pour you one of my 10 year old wines under screw cap, and you can assess it for yourself. Um, the wines do develop, but they're not going to develop some of the negative characteristics that are going to happen under natural cork. Larry, this has been so fascinating and trying to work with you, setting things up. I know how busy you are and how you always have 10,000 things going on at once. So I can imagine you've got a packed day ahead. So um, we're going to thank you for the time with us. And honestly, getting to know you and Tercera Wines, talk about approachable and down to earth I think you are a person everyone can relate to your personality. So engaging. And uh, so folks who cannot get to Los Olivos ought to look you up and on the web at Tercera wines and schedule one of those zooms, get Larry in your living room. I would love to see that happen. Thank you both for having me. I know we had some challenges uh, making this happen and I'm really glad that we did. And yeah, any follow-up questions people have certainly feel free to reach out to me directly via email uh, you can find that on my website. Uh, as you can tell, I love talking about not only what I do, but wines in general. I don't have all the answers, but I certainly have um, many and a lot of opinions. So more than happy to share those as well. Well, I think your opinions certainly make wine a lot more fun for people and bring it you know, down to earth and make it so much less intimidating. And that's what we're all about with this show is bringing more people into wine and letting them know to trust their taste buds and not worry about what people say you should like or what tasting notes say. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's something that I, I, um, I take pride in. I don't, I don't try to be anyone other than myself. And I just, I want wine to be approachable. I want people to have it on their table and not worry that they have the wrong bottle or not worry that they're going to go on to Delectable and Vivino and that it has a bad rating somehow. And then so therefore it can't be good. And I, I just, I just, I just want people to enjoy it. I want them to experience it. I need them to take some time with it. You know, wine is not something that gives immediate gratification per se. You need to kind of understand it. So you're going to have to come to wine a little bit to enjoy it. Man, I, you know, Larry Schaefer, wine evangelist that I can relate to. So thank you for that. <laughs> and thank you guys very much. I really do appreciate it. All right, Larry, take care and sip, sip, hooray. Cheers, Larry. Sip, sip, hooray. Thank you guys very much. Well, Mary Orlin, I just loved that conversation. I felt like I learned so much and just made a new friend in Larry Schaefer. He's so cool. And how about the thing about the coffee? He nailed us both. Me, the coffee with cream girl, you, the black coffee. And he got our taste like almost to a T. He did. It was as if he was, you know, at the table with us. <laughs> and <laughs> 
And he was like, you know, he knew what I like to eat, what I like to drink. It, it, it's just like a fort, you know, almost the fortune teller. <laughs> That's what I was thinking too. That's funny. But um, he was great. So um, to find Larry and his wines and sign up for his his winemaker zooms go to tercerowines.com and that's t-e-r-c-e-r-o-w-i-n-e-s.com and to find us we're at sipsipparaypodcast.com you can sign up for our podcast so you are notified when there's a new episode dropped or you can follow us on social media we hope you do and our on Instagram and Facebook, we are at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast. And please tag us and share. Um, and you'll get notified when our new episodes are ready and when this, um, and we'll um, let you know any other exciting news. Yeah. And we'll keep trying to bring you conversations with fun, interesting, non intimidating people like Larry Schaefer. Because as we said, that is what we're all about here on Sip Sip Hooray podcast. We want to make wine fun. So thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us again next time. And uh, cheers to you, Mary Orlin. Cheers to you, Mary Babbitt. Sip Sip Hooray. Mm-hmm.